Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to Reformation Part 3. I know it seems like this podcast series is lasting longer than the actual Reformation. Sorry about that, but I am a student of the Bible and I've been doing a lot of studying lately. Future podcasts will actually delve into what I'm learning in seminary, so stay tuned for that. Let's review what we know so far about the Reformation. For the average person living in Europe during the late 1400s to 1500s, life was pretty bleak and salvation was seen as something to be earned, which meant that each person believed they had work to do to be saved and to get to heaven. Death was used as a threat and a visual deterrent for avoiding sin. Fire and brimstone were the themes repeated in church every week. People were encouraged to do whatever they could do to avoid eternal damnation. This is what we call a works-based theology, striving for salvation by doing good deeds. And it led many to purchase indulgences to allegedly reduce their time in purgatory, which, you know, was sort of a midway point between heaven and hell. Well, this is the cornerstone of Luther's pursuit of truth because Luther himself fell victim to like literally torturing himself in order to be seen worthy for salvation. Hey, Luther knew that as human beings were weak and prone to sin and error and honestly, never in a million years could we do anything by ourselves that could possibly be pleasing to a righteous God. Luther also knew that behind every good deed was a hidden agenda of how could possibly earn favor with God. It wasn't about how to love thy neighbor. Care for souls became Luther's personal pilgrimage for truth. So, Luther initially turns to the Catholic Church and its teachings. Now, the theology of the day taught that the Church would mediate the grace of Jesus Christ for people. So, you know, it was, it was conceded that, yes, human initiative isn't enough, but when added to grace received through the sacraments, people could, in partnership with God, be pleasing to God. So this theology became kind of a contract between man and God. It meant as Christians, we had an active role to play in our salvation. In essence, salvation became a prize that had to be won, at least in part, by our worldly efforts. Now, this would require constant vigilance, not to mention a lot of worry. Am I doing enough? What if God doesn't like my best? As we learned in the last podcast, Luther, by looking at the Bible, specifically Paul's letter to the Romans, Luther saw that the Apostle Paul made it clear that those who, quote, 
presumptuously thought they could somehow come to God apart from Christ were solely mistaken, unquote. Salvation and the gift of faith came from Christ alone through faith alone. Well, the understanding of this was life-changing. It took the focus off of self and deeds and placed it squarely on Christ. The defense for all our sin was Christ. Human effort, good works, indulgences had no part in salvation. Well, now we're going to unpack how this revelation would literally turn the church and the world on its head. We learned that on October 31st, 1517, Luther posted what is now called the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg. Primarily, the 95 Theses focused on the fact that selling indulgences to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica was wrong. Luther also said in the 95 Theses that the Pope had no power over purgatory. At this point, he wasn't negating the existence of purgatory, but that the Pope himself couldn't keep you out. And papal indulgences don't remove guilt, and that buying indulgences actually was giving people a false sense of security, but in fact endangered their salvation. Well, Pope Leo X got a copy of the 95 Theses, and he made it clear that he wanted to silence Martin Luther. Things start heating up after a series of articles and debates, and Rome is taking notice. The belief was that the Pope was infallible, and Luther was calling that into question. Some time passes, and now Luther, <laughs> he's wising up. He's no longer naive, and he has made the decision that opposition most likely means he's on the right track. He's quoted as saying, I know that whoever wants to bring the word of Christ into the world, much like the apostles, leaves behind and renounces everything and should expect death at any moment. If any other situation prevailed, it would not be the word of Christ. In our last podcast, we discussed that Luther received something called the Exerge Domini in 1520 also called a papal bull or official document, this exerge domini excommunicates Luther if he does not take back all the false teachings according to Rome. We also listened last time to the famous words spoken by Luther at a formal assembly in 1521 called the Diet of Worms in Worms, Germany. This is where Luther had to appear before not only the emperor, but many representatives from Rome. And he was supposed to recant his writings and all of his words. His response is well known. Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or 
with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. This is where we pick up our story. Buckle up. It is a wild ride. The events at Verms coincided with placards all over the city of a picture of a boot. Well, what was that all about? The boot represented the peasant class. The boot represented revolution. Remember when I said that initially Luther really had no idea what he was getting into? Luther's attack on the church was going to have economic, political, social, and religious ramifications. Charles V guarantees Luther safe passage after Worms, but only for 21 days. Luther is supposed to not pass go, not collect $200, directly go to Wittenberg. He's not to write, not to talk to anyone, and definitely not to preach. Luther wrote some letters defending his actions, spoke to some people, and he preached at a few stops along the way. During his return from Worms, Luther is escorted at various places by various people. When he reaches Castle Altenstein, at this point he finds himself only with two companions. And wouldn't you know it, they're on an empty wooded road and it's late at night. Well, out of nowhere, four or five armed horsemen come out of the woods and demand to know if Luther is among the travelers. Uh-oh. <laughs> One of Luther's companions panics and points to Luther. So Luther is dragged from the wagon and taken away. Word gets out, Luther is a goner. But once Luther and his captors were kind of safely out of sight, they revealed their plan to Luther. And it was not to bring him harm, but actually to take him to safety. This was at Elector Frederick's castle called Wartburg, W-A-R-T-B-U-R-G. In fact, the plot was so carefully carried out that even Elector Frederick himself did not know that Luther was in his castle. Luther, all in all, was treated well, and there was really only one rule. Don't be recognized. He was considered an outlaw and legally anyone who spotted him could kill him and not be punished for murder. Luther had to be careful. Few knew his whereabouts. His room had a retractable stairway. So again, very few people came and went. He grew his hair out, so he no longer had that little circle of baldness that was the characteristic monk haircut. And he grew his beard, and he dressed like a knight. He even had to change his name <laughs> to Junker Jorg 
Now that's J-U-N-K-E-R-J-O-R-G, which in English means Sir George, Junker Jorg. Yes, the food wasn't bad and the accommodations weren't bad, but Luther still was not happy about his captivity. He was actually rearing for a fight. And so he did have his Bibles with him. He had his Hebrew Old Testament and his Greek New Testament, and he read it every single day. He's in captivity for 10 months. Eventually, people smuggle him some parchment And he publishes 12 books, and he translates the entire New Testament into his native German language. So he was busy during this time. Luther even more strongly defends his biblical conclusion that the Bible makes it clear. No way to obtain salvation through human means. No amount of good works is going to get us to heaven. Salvation was through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther wanted the common citizen to not only have access to the Bible in their own language, but during this time, he really started to realize how important it was for the common man to have practical day-to-day information on how to live their lives with this new understanding that their good works should be aimed at their fellow man for the good of their fellow man, not to try to earn salvation. For the last 300 years, it had been believed that people needed to confess their sins at least once a year to a priest. Luther declared while being stuck in Wartburg that this was, quote, a monstrous burden laid on the consciences of ordinary people and was not necessary. Again, think of the landscape of ancient Germany in the Middle Ages. People lived very, very far away from churches and uh, priests, and it was a burden for them to have to do this. Luther determined from scripture, it was not necessary to confess one's sins to a priest because Christ himself ordered that only Christians confess their sins to one another. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And Luther wrote, we can, quote, candidly and from the heart confess, counsel, help, and plead with one another about whatever secretly lies on our hearts, whether it's a sin or a deep ache. And then, without doubts about the clear promise of God, and on this account, go freely and happily to the sacrament and die to ourselves for it, unquote. This confession and absolution we can give to each other, Not through our own power, but through the promise of the blood of Christ and the waters of baptism. That our sins are forgiven. Well, as you can imagine, a man like Luther, with such passion and conviction, is going to get a little itchy. And 
doesn't take well to isolation. So after a few months of captivity, Luther, under disguise, gets on a horse, left the Wartburg Castle, and went to Wittenberg. Remember, this is where he nailed the 95 Thesis, and this is where he taught for many years. He loves Wittenberg. Well, one of the reasons why he wanted to get out was he had heard rumors of what was happening during the months of his isolation, and he really needed to find out for himself. Well, apparently his disguise as a knight was so good that the artist who actually painted all of the paintings of Martin Luther throughout his life didn't recognize him and just thought he was a famous knight visiting Wittenberg. So it actually exists, this painting of Jorg, (laughs) Junker Jorg, uh, Sir George, and I have a picture of it on my website, studentofthebible.com. So you can see what Luther looks like under disguise, long hair and a long beard. It's actually very amusing. Well, during his undercover escapades, Luther saw and heard some rumblings that were actually very upsetting. So when he returns to Wartburg Castle, he writes a letter titled, Admonition to All True Christians to Guard Themselves Against Sedition. In this letter, he said there were no grounds for insurrection And if they did act this way, they were just playing into the hands of the enemy, who expected them to act basically in a godless manner. At this time, people had started to call themselves Lutherans. Luther really objected to this. He's quoted as saying, How did it come about that I, a poor, stinking bag of dung, should come to the point that anyone could give the children of Christ my godless name. Luther ends up spending about 300 days in Wartburg, but then he got to a point where he couldn't bear it any longer, and even though he was still an outlaw, he went back to Wittenberg, and this is where he preached what's known as law and gospel. We're all sinners, and because of that, we deserve certain death, but through the promise of the waters of baptism, communion, and the pronouncement of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of all our sins, we are signed, sealed, and delivered with no effort on our part. Followers are now also called evangelicals, or just the gospel. Luther's followers grew, and he was building quite a team of reformers who actually would be with him for the rest of his life. And the team of reformers weren't just staying local. They were actually spreading throughout Germany and parts of Switzerland, especially in 1522 and 1523. Not all of Luther's followers were peaceful, though. There were men like Karlstad and a guy by the name of Munzer, and they resorted to violence and and out-out manipulation. Luther, on the other hand, he really saw his words as bullets, and he didn't want to exert his personal authority 
He just wanted to point to the authority of Scripture. But there were many anti-Rome opponents who were kind of heading towards a different kind of fight. Munzer, who was a follower of Luther, he kind of gets fed up with Luther's pacifism, and he ends up being a leader of what's going to be called the Peasant War. Remember the boot placards that were all over the place at Worms during the Diet of Worms? Well, there actually was an all-out war, 1524 to 1525, called the Peasant War. It was a reaction to oppression of the peasant class, just like it sounds. Peasants, they worked the land and often were turned into serfs and had to pay really unmanageable dues. They were basically in servitude for the rest of their lives to landlords, and so they're rebelling against this. Luther responds with a letter called An Admonition to Peace, and this was directed to the princes and the lords, and uh, he called it what it was, unjust treatment of the peasants. But in his letter, he also addressed the peasants, and he admonished rebellion and said that the gospel should not be used as a justification for self-serving violence. During Luther's life, many, many more letters and books were written to the nobility, to the clergy, and even to the average German person. And though Luther had many princes who agreed with his doctrines, there was still a bounty throughout the land on his head for anyone who followed Luther's teachings. So there's a great schism between the followers of Luther and the followers of Rome. Eventually, as more princes started to feel animosity towards Rome and a warming towards Luther's way of looking at scripture, edicts were drawn up so that the princes of the lands could declare religion for their own territories. But if they went against the church, they'd have to also give up certain lands. Uh-huh. You're starting to see an economic and political ramification. So, protesting estates became known as, can you guess it? Protestants. Luther continues, though, for passive resistance. Yeah, for the rest of Luther's life, he was considered an outlaw. And many times he had to have other people argue, debate for him publicly. The Augsburg Confession is one of those examples. The confessions were a statement of beliefs held by Martin Luther and others. And it was actually presented by a follower of Luther's beliefs, a man by the name of Melanchthon. But Luther completely agreed with everything that was in the confessions. It became a public confession of faith. It was not well received by Rome. In fact, later, Melanchthon was basically forced into having to write an apology to the Augsburg Confession. Luther continued to learn really the long-standing ramifications of what he was starting to uncover. 
he got to a point where he agreed to a letter that stated resistance, even armed resistance, was legitimate for a Christian prince. But listen to this. Only because the German constitution allowed princes to take up arms against an emperor who disregarded the law of the land because the gospel does not confound matters of temporal law. It seems proper that one should make preparations to resist with force just as quickly as it may be possible to do so. Luther made it clear he wasn't sanctioning a religious war, but he now realized the constitutional and political situation did make it legitimate and honestly not unchristian for the princes to prepare to defend themselves should war be forced on them. But Luther wanted to make it clear that the princes were acting to defend themselves and not the gospel because the gospel needs no defense. Luther's disappointment continues when the Roman Catholic Church refuses to even look at the message of the Augsburg Confession. Absolutely no concessions, no wiggle room. They had to recant it all. There's so much more to this story that we don't have time for. Luther marries a nun. Yes, he does. He gets married. Her name was Katie. He marries her in 1525, and she gives him six children. Luther died February 18th, 1546. He left quite a legacy. While far from perfect, and he'd be the first to admit his sins. And later in life, he wrote some very harmful letters about the Jews. And Luther is most strongly remembered for his strong desire to focus on salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. You know, he was initially willing to die in defense of Rome and the Pope. But later, he condemned Rome and the Pope when they refused to entertain the notion that they might actually have made a mistake and that deeds were not required for salvation and that the priesthood held no special powers for the forgiveness of sins and that the Pope was not infallible. Luther and his fellow reformers' impact, we're still feeling it today. They changed education for pastors as well as lay people. They're actually responsible for starting liberal arts colleges. And they moved the focus in seminary from reason and logic to focus on the scripture. A renewed emphasis on the care of souls for all the people in the pews. A focus on teaching parents and children through books like the Saul Catechism that would provide information on the prayers for daily teaching. He placed a Bible in their hands in their native language. They'd never had this before. Most of them could not read Latin. In fact, most of the parents could not read. It ended up being the children who would read the small catechism to the parents. Luther helped the people of his generation 
and generations to come understand that God's word actually does what it says. The word of God forgives sins. What followed Luther's death were a series of wars and a series of reforms. 1618 to 1648 is what we call the 30-year war. This was a war of Protestants versus Catholics in not just Germany, but various European nations. It actually started, this is sort of interesting, it started when the future emperor, but he wasn't emperor at the time, Ferdinand II, tried to impose Catholicism throughout his domain. Well, Protestant nobles rebelled and war ensued. To quote the website history.com, it says, as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia, and that was the treaty that actually ended the war, the Netherlands gained independence from Spain. Sweden gained control of the Baltic. And France was acknowledged as the preeminent Western power. Well, the power of the Holy Roman Empire was broken. German states were again able to determine the religion of their lands. And History.com goes on and says, The ancient notion of a Roman Catholic Empire of Europe headed by a pope and temporally by an emperor, was permanently abandoned. And the essential structure of modern Europe as a community of sovereign states was established. End quote. Well, many would argue that the Reformation of the Church has not ended. It actually continues today. Many denominations argue over interpretation of Scripture, the meaning and power of the sacraments, some argue over what Luther called adiaphora. That means things that aren't important to salvation, like wearing of vestments, or the presence of statues, or the use of incense, or fasting, or observance of saints. Regardless, here are some points for us to remember. It's Christ's church, and we're the body. We don't need a building to worship. As the body of Christ, we are reminded in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness. Our forgiveness and salvation is found in Christ. Not in deeds, or in our choosing Christ as our personal Savior, or in us having a conversion story. It is, by grace alone, found in faith alone, in Christ alone, that frees us from sin and offers us eternal life. Thanks be to God.